The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. And I'm Brian Moon from Perigean Technologies. Today we welcome Eduardo Salas. Eduardo is the Alan R. and Gladys M. Klein Professor and Chair of the Department of Psychological Sciences at Rice University. He is a prolific author and an active consultant. He's published over 600 articles and chapters, and his work has been cited over 100,000 times. That, that's a big number. Um, he has, uh, he's consulted on a wide range of domains, including healthcare, manufacturing, oil and gas, and aviation and aerospace. He is a past president of the Society for Industrial Organizational Psychology and the Human Factors and Ergonomic Society, and he's also a fellow in numerous other scientific societies. Dr. Salas has received two Lifetime Achievement Awards, one from the American Psychological Association and another from the Society for Human Resources Management. He is co-author of the recently published book, Teams That Work, The Seven Drivers of Team Effectiveness. Welcome, Eduardo, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Laura. Brian, uh, glad to be here. Yeah, we're really happy to get a chance to speak with you. And so I wanted to begin at the very beginning, and I'm wondering if you can remember the very first paper you ever published. The uh, publication was with my advisor, um, and at that time was the first time we began to talk about team training and team development. Uh, interventions. I see. I see. So do you remember, was that um, based on a study you did or? Um... No. So my, my interest in teams and teamwork uh, derived from a class I took in grad school with, uh, again, my advisor at that time, uh, Alan Klickman. It was a seminar on teams and he was, this is now in the mid 80s, and he was about to get a grant uh, on teams so in class, uh, I got interested in, in, the, in the topic and we connected and then we began to write together. And, and then when I joined the Navy, uh, we began to, uh, to collaborate. So we continue to collaborate. I see. And so that early, that early work on teams, when you first started writing and thinking about it, were you thinking about military teams there or other kinds of teams or? Yes, it was a military because the proposal that he was writing and, and what he was talking in class was all about the, the military. And since I had done a little work before I joined Old Dominion, uh, on, in the mil- I, I did some work in the military. Um, so that's how we connected. I see. Um, and so uh, what were you thinking about then that early in your career about teams and, and, and team training? Yeah. So actually, you know, when I was done in 84, I joined the Navy uh, as a research psychologist, civil servant. And I was hired to develop a team training team performance laboratory. So I did two things. Well, I had two goals. The first was to try to understand the kind of teams that I was dealing with. So I spent uh, three, six months, I remember traveling 
to uh, U.S. Navy uh, uh, bases and trying to look at submarine teams, uh, uh, different, type, different types of combat teams. So I did that. But the other thing, the other stream that I had going was at the time I had learned about meta-analysis. And so, and as you know, meta-analysis is a quantitative integration of number studies. So I wanted to see what was out there. What, what, what was the state of the science? So I started uh, with uh, Al Kleckman, Terry Dickinson, and other colleagues. Uh, we started a, a huge meta-analysis trying to understand again uh, the, the state of the science. So those were the two things that I was thinking about at our way at the beginning, you know, trying to understand the real teams that I was dealing with and try to understand the science. Where, where were we? What was the, 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 the knowledge that we had at that time? I see. I see. And uh, so I, I have um, a sense that many uh, industrial organizational academic departments uh, really emphasize surveys as, as a, a primary method, but you were you were going out and doing naturalistic observations. Um, was that uh, counterculture to the department there at Old Dominion, or or, um, well, or were other folks doing that kind of thing? No, well, it's true. So uh, you know, yeah, industrial organizational psychologists began to do surveys, self-reported. Um, uh, type of uh, instruments, but when I got to the Navy, uh, and, and I began to do this, you know, exploratory things of the real teams and the science, I quickly got to the conclusion that self-report was not going to get us too far. And so we also uh, decided, that, you know, a number a number of us that we needed to do observations. We need to look at real teams doing real things. Um, so experts, that's what we, we wanted uh, to do. And uh, some of the funding that I got uh, came from the Office of Naval Research. And ONR uh, at that time was a little, quote unquote, tired of funding uh, industrial organizational psychologists to do surveys. Because in the 70s and early 80s, that's all they were doing. So when I got there, they're meaning the Navy, um, they basically said, why don't you look at experts, uh, real teams? And so we embarked in, in, the, in, that, uh, in that path of looking uh, in observing real teams, doing real things. In this case, we're, we're simulations, right? So we, but, but at least this was uh, experts. Ah, so they were, so you had some kind of simulator or simulated environment? Yeah, I, at that time, the Navy had a big... Uh, Buildings that, that they call team trainers, as a matter of fact. So at that time in Norfolk, in San Diego, in uh, Connecticut, uh, the, the naval bases have these huge rooms uh, that, that essentially mimic uh, the ships and then the combat information centers, for example, that they had. So um, that were the sense we observed the teams, we interviewed the experts. Uh, that's where we collected the data uh, at the beginning. I see. I see. So so it sounds like just kind of the needs of the topics you were studying were kind of what pushed you into this more observational approach. Um, the phenomenon you want to understand, you just 
felt like you couldn't really learn enough relying only on surveys. Yeah. And then there was another big um, uh, event that uh, essentially forced us to study experts, uh, which also led me to get into the NDM field. So in, when the USS Vincent shut down the Iranian Airbus by mistake, to make a long story short, uh, Congress allocated uh, a lot of money to the Office of Naval Research to study deep decision and the stress, the Tadman's program that some of you might, most of you might be familiar. Sure. And when we got the money um, to do this, there was a, a, a strict requirement that we would have to look at experts and, and look at, again, experts doing real things. So by the late 80s, even though we were still, we were doing that, and um, we were doing that, when we got this big, uh, uh, big infusion of money uh, to do more and better things, the requirement came to us as that you must study uh, experts. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, okay, and so it's so um, at that at that time, it seems like uh, psychologists were just kind of figuring out um, how to adapt methods from sociology and other domains to do. Uh, observations and and if we're going to do interviews what kind of questions to ask and how to do that so you were part of that group that was really um looking around for how to how to extend methods from other disciplines uh to study expertise yes so um we needed one of the first things we we noticed once we got the 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 margin orders, if you will, to, to do this is that, um, that the industrial organizational psychology theories and methods was not enough. And so we needed to explore other things. So, yeah, we went to human factors uh, approaches, uh, anthropological approaches, uh, sociologists. And we were looking for uh, more robust and rich methods uh, of observation. Um, and we also were looking for uh, new theoretical perspectives, you know, from cognitive psychology, cognitive science, uh, mathematical. Uh, also, uh, you know, we were interested in, in whether we can model uh, team performance and learn from it. So we took a, um, a multidisciplinary approach uh, and tried to engage uh, scientists that had. Um, were a different uh, lens to what we were looking at. Interesting. So, so it, it sounds as if um, your your career very early on, you, you got interested in these naturalistic um, methods even before they had a name. Um, but it wasn't. It doesn't sound like there was a a, a deliberate turn that you were you were um, deeply. Uh, entrenched in, in in more traditional I/O methods, and then made a turn. It sounds like this just kind of happened organically. Yeah, it happened, and then of course we uh, along the way, as we were doing all this, you know, uh, we met Gary Klein, uh, Daniel Sarfari, we met uh, uh, people, you know, um, Mark Cohen and, and others who uh, Robert Hoffman, uh, who were you know beginning to. Think about you know kind of like the NDM uh, 
uh, Moonrin, I call it at that time. And in, 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 so we we got attached to that, and we said, "This is where we need. This is where we we can maybe get help, where we can uh, uh, learn." And, and and that's how we we got into uh, NDM. So, Eduardo, that that first NDM meeting was in Dayton uh, in '89, I believe. Uh, you were there as well. Uh, can, you, can you tell us kind of what you remember about that meeting? Yeah, I tell you that uh, what I remember was there was no TV and no phones in the room. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when we said, uh, I remember saying this, you know, uh, I think this uh, organization needs a little money. So we, we began to, there's no phones and TVs on the, on the room. Um, so, you know, you know, aside, um, well, it, 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 that was to me an eye-opening experience because again, uh, the, the names I just gave you, Gary, Robert, uh, we met, and what we learned, and uh, Judith or a son who was there too from NASA. Um, it, it essentially what we learned there with the Jan Cano Bowers, who was my partner. Uh, we said this is this is the the. Area. This is the, the the scientists that are going to help us, and so from now on, you know, until I left the Navy, we, we supported the the NDM conference, and and then of course we at that time we gave um, uh, resources to a number of scientists there to uh, to study things to help us. So it, it was a great conference, other than no phone and no TV. <laughs> Yeah, so I think they hosted it in a monastery. <laughs> yeah, funny. It was it was fun. I mean, I think all of the NDMs uh, that are, you know I haven't been to uh, uh, them in a, in a couple of years, in a few years, but uh, they were all always fun. Yeah, yeah, they are fun meetings. Um, so when you reflect back on your career from where you sit now, I wonder: is there one project that really stands out for you as as particularly fulfilling? Yeah, it was the Tadmus app. Um, you know, the tactical decision-making and the stress program that eventually we published a book in 1998, um, you know, Teams Under Stress. Um, that project was unbelievable. First of all, we had a lot of money. Um, and when you have money, then you can, uh, you know, seek uh, help and expertise and you can try different things. But that project had everything, you know, had we developed theory, we developed methods, we collected lots of data in, in simulations, laboratories, and in real environments. Um, we, we provided uh, a number of uh, guidance, guidelines, and principles to the Navy. Um, somebody long time ago from the Navy actually told, told me once that, that the beauty of Tadmos was that it changed how the Navy did training. So we, we, you know, that project was very enriching, uh, very rewarding. I learned a lot. We all learned a lot. Uh, learned how to defend money because we were we had so much money that a lot of people said, that "How come a bunch of psychologists have this money and I don't have gasoline for my ship?" I mean, literally, some of the military people were, were upset that we had all these resources. So that project was uh, unbelievable uh, in, in, in my career. I, you know, I still remember uh, every, what I do today and how I approach uh, consulting and observing teams 
came from there. So that project started in 88, 89, and lasted until 98, somewhere around there. So you said it really changed the way the Army did training. The Navy. Um, the Navy, Navy sorry. Right. <laughs> the way the Navy did training. Can you um, give us an example of, of what, what kind of changes you, you saw this? Um, yeah, so, um, you know, uh, one of the things that we, we, we were doing, especially Jen Cannon Bowers, uh, was going to naval training facilities and giving talks about what we were doing and what we were finding. So what we gave them, these are now instructors, uh, heads of, uh, of training, we gave them a different way to think about learning and training and simulation and, and how to think about a scenario-based training where scenario is the curriculum and not just put people in a simulation for the sake of, of, of that so that, so that they, the simulation has to, be in, um, has to be carefully crafted so that the behaviors and cognitions uh, could be observed, assessed. So we, that's what we did. We, we, we told them, that, I guess, I guess um, how to think about learning and, and training and simulation and team training. And, and I think that's, an, you know, till today, an enduring uh, legacy. Uh, we, most of the feedback that we got was because of you guys, quote unquote, um, we did, we changed our approach. So I, I cannot tell you, I cannot quantify this. I cannot tell you where to go to find all the changes we made because one of the things I usually say is, that our biggest product in in you know, on the Tatmus program was that we changed people's mind, mm. and so we did this essentially one one uh, training site at a time. We travel a lot through all the naval bases, doing lectures and helping instructors. So, so I think you know again the the, the person that told me that was the next captain. When, when he retired and I met him at a conference, he said, you know, you guys changed the way the Navy did training. That was very rewarding to hear that. Sure, yeah. Yeah, so is there a, a contrasting mindset you can think of, the way folks were thinking about it, that that the TAMIS program really shifted? Yeah, so, the, the, you know, training um, in the Navy at that time was, uh, let's put the, uh, the people in the simulators, or simulations, and um, you know, let, let, let's see how they do. Um, and if they if they're doing well, we're gonna put them put them down so they can learn. Uh, you know that uh, this is not easy. I mean, it, it was a very, in my view, archaic, archaic uh, way of doing learning. And so we we provided theory, we provided a structure, we provided a methodology. Again, this scenario-based training approach, event-based approach to training. We provided tools, and, and and I think that you know the way simulation, actually beyond mil the military, especially now in healthcare, you know, has shifted to to be something more systematic, more essentially gone to basics, more thinking about what are the learning objectives, what are the learning outcomes, given the learning outcomes, what triggers we need to have in the simulation that elicit the kind of uh, behaviors that we want. Uh, you know, and the basis of that, um, what is it that we need to assess? How we need to assess it? Observations and so forth. And then how do we debrief? 
And so that cycle is, I think, what we created uh, and, and still, I guess, is used today. Yeah, so I can imagine an organization like the Navy with such a long history had probably lots of legacy practices. Like this is how we've always trained. This is what we've right. always done. And you were kind of helping them uh, just think about it in a more mindful way. Yeah, we provided a, uh, a structure and, and, and we provided data. But the other, you know, to me, another piece of why I love Tamas um, uh, is we were, uh, we again, John Cannonbauer, John Hall, uh, Dan Dwyer, I mean, I can give you a bunch of names. We were um, so motivated to help, I think, that that spirit, that uh, attitude got um, transmitted, I guess, or was recognized by the, by the fleets that we were trying to help, that we were not these um, Ivory Tower PhD psychologists. And that opened a lot of doors and, and people wanted to listen to us as opposed to saying, oh, here comes another PhD that's going to tell us uh, all this stuff. So I, 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 in reflecting back over the years when all of, all of the Navy PIs, you know, again, John Cannabauer's, uh, you know, we, we talked about this, our motivation, our energy to try to do, to have impact, I think was a big driver of why people listen to us, at least open the door so, the, uh, so that they can listen to what we had to offer. And, um, and eventually they, they changed, they, they, they believed us, they trust us and they did things differently. Wow, that sounds like a really exciting time. It must have been very cool to be right at the oh, heart of that. Oh, my 15 years in the Navy, you know, I, I worked in there from 84 to 99 and then I became an academic. Those 15 years were unbelievable. Uh, like I said, very rewarding. You know, we, we did all kinds of things. We tried all kinds of things. Uh, we were young and bold and wanted to have impact. Um, all, of the, all of us wanted to have impact. You know, I never wanted to be an academic, but uh, and eventually in those years in the Navy, we published so much that, you know, the transition to academia was easy. But those 15 years there were... Uh, you know, wow! I, I just don't. Uh, I, I have no words to describe other than how enriching and you know uh, fulfilling. Uh, we learn a lot. We win mistakes. We laugh. We cry. I mean, everything. It's just unreal. unreal. <laughs> so, Eduardo, you shared that interesting anecdote about the um, the commanders wondering why you were getting money and they didn't have gas. I wonder if there were other times when you could remember some pushback or where you kind of struggled to get uh, traction. I tell you, you know, at that time it was a, it was a pain in the butt, but uh, the Tamils program had a, an advisory board and we were, uh, so, uh, so yeah, had an advisory board that it, we, it would meet every six months. So every real, literally every six months we had a review of our progress and so forth. Uh, Bill Howell was the chair, and the and the board was composed of somebody from the army, somebody from the air force, and a number of people in uniform, a, a couple of captains. And so forth. we were drilled every six months about stuff that we were doing, and and, and so uh, essentially every six months we had to defend our program. At that time, it was a pain, it was uh, frustrating, uh, but in looking back, 
I think if it wasn't for that uh, board that made us um, made us uh, ground all our stuff in 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 impact and in real in things that would matter to the Navy, I don't think it would have would have would have worked. So that board uh, was murdered to us. I mean, it was just incredible. But we, we survived all of them. You know, we, we, we kept going. We kept doing things. And we took their advice. And we just kept going. And, um, yeah, there was uh, a, a, a number of push, pushbacks that we had to go and brief uh, different uh, commanders uh, who were, in a sense, complaining that, you know, the, this program had like $20 million in, in uh they couldn't get uh, gas to, for, for the ships uh, at that time. There was a, you know, the economy was a uh, uh, the 80s uh, was not that great, I think. But anyway, so so yeah, we had a lot of pushback. As it, now, you know, uh, 20 years later, I wouldn't call it pushback. I would call it you know um, benevolent guidance. Did you say it, benevolent guidance? Yeah, something you know, it, well, maybe not benevolent, but they, I mean they were <laughs> they were harsh, but. Uh, <laughs> But it, it made us think. It made us always be on our toes and always try to remember our, our objective, our, the aims, and who we're, we were trying to help and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about uh, sort of credibility? I mean, it sounds like you, especially in dealing with folks in uniform having served, did that provide you any credibility, say, again, uh, compared to some of your other partners? Well, um, I tell you how we gained credibility to them. So uh, when we got uh, the money, ONR had a, had a program. It was called Scientists at Sea. And so what we did was, uh, for example, Jan Cano Bowers deployed for three weeks. She was on board a ship for three weeks. So she was sweating and uh, getting dirty like uh, all the sailors. So when she came back, uh, she could talk uh, about. Um, uh, how is it to uh, be and uh, work on, on a ship? I was supposed to do the same thing, but mine got canceled. And so most of us got credibility because we got dirty with them. We, we, uh, we, we had, you know, um, been on their ships, on their, on their uh, training facilities. And so that helped tremendously. Um, uh, so one of the things that we did uh, while I was there, every time we got a new project uh, around team training, whether it was uh, air, surface, subsurface, we try to um, uh, deploy or go on a ship or go and spend some time uh, where they were training and, and, and look at the, the facilities and those kind of things. So we gained, we gained tremendous credibility Especially Jan, when she could say, you know, I've been there uh, and I uh, sweated with all of you. And she had the lingo and she got the, um, uh, uh, all the uh, experience of three weeks being deployed. So that helped us. Uh, and, and I learned that. So now when I do some consulting or what I'm going to do some research, the first thing I want to do is immerse myself in the context. You know, just observe, walk around, see what they're doing, and, and that that helps uh, long term. 
Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've had similar experiences in, in some domains. That's really, really hard to be able to do. Um, but, but when you can do it, it's super helpful. So in the healthcare stuff that I do now, for example, I, you know, I've been in ORs for hours. I've been in NICUs for hours. Um, observe and, you know, uh, and, and try to get a sense of what are these experts doing? That's the other thing I learned at, at the Akron uh, uh, meeting, the first meeting of NDM. It was, you know, it's about experts. It's about real people doing real things. Um, and, and that has stuck with me all, uh, all this time. So I want to fast forward to, to today, and I'm wondering what are uh, what's the most exciting thing that you're working on right now? There are two two things. Um, one is healthcare, and as you may or may not know, there's an obsession with teamwork in healthcare because of the medical errors. And so, uh, about seventy five percent of the things I do is healthcare. Either I go and give lots of talks about the science teamwork and the science of team training, or I do research there. So healthcare is, you know, um, it, it's, they, they need all, all this uh, knowledge that we have around teams and team training. So I, I also helped, um, there's a medical team training program called Teen Steps, uh, all one word with double P. Um, if you Google that, you'll, you'll, you'll be able to uh, find a, um, a site uh, where you can download a, a medical team training program, which is about eight hours of uh, you know, curriculum and tapes and videos and all that. And I was I was one of the scientists who helped design that. And it, you know, I'm happy and proud to say that uh, about 70% of the U.S. hospitals use it. You can download it free, by the way. And, and, and it's, uh, it, it comes in Word, so you can change, adapt it. Uh, it's an incredible resource. And so uh, that has given me some credibility and all my experience. So the exciting thing is when I go to a hospital and a CEO or a chief medical officer asks me a question, like, you know, I'm going to make this up a little bit, you know, what should we do? And I tell them, well, I think you should turn to the left. And I leave, and then three weeks later, I get a call and says, you know, you told us to turn to the left. We did, and we're doing good. That, that can impact. That's, uh, that's incredible. So healthcare is one that is interesting to me because they, they're listening, especially now with COVID-19. My God, they, they, they need help. These teams, there's this a, like, what, like they are, you know, these heroes in, in the front line, they're... Uh, Helping others, so that one, and then the second, so that that kind of it's, it's one bucket. The other bucket is, although I'm doing a little less now, but uh, uh, eight, nine years, uh, five, six years ago, I was doing a lot. This NASA, so um, you know, if we go to Mars in 2035, 36, somewhere under, we're gonna send a team, and so team cohesion is in uh, teamwork. Uh, issues are. Uh, paramount uh, uh, to the success of, um, of the mission. So NASA has a branch uh, now devoted to team performance, to team cohesion. And I've done some work uh, uh, around team training, around trying to understand team cohesion, uh, 
Uh, NASA has a mock-up, uh, Johnson Space Center, of uh, what a shuttle or capsule might look like, and we're running participants, astronaut-like participants to there. So that's another one very warning because um, what you find and what you say it matters. And, and so those are the two things that now uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing uh, I'm in, a lot more in healthcare. As a matter of fact, I tell you this morning at 7 o'clock, I gave a lecture, a virtual lecture, to 100 plus surgeons of Texas Children's Hospital on teamwork uh, on the ground round. And I do a lot of those. Those two things are, uh, you know, exciting. And uh, as you noted in the, in the, in the intro and in the bio, uh, my book just came out yesterday uh, on all the science that we have. Uh, and that's exciting to see how, how see how that goes. But the book was published; uh, it's online now. That's another exciting thing we're doing with my partner Scott Tannenbaum, who's the lead author. Um, we've been doing a lot, a lot of talks and podcasts like like this and and, and the like. So that's that's what um, keeps me uh, young these days. <laughs> Very nice. So I wondered if you have any observations about differences between military teams and healthcare teams none no so uh, the way the way I, uh, I approach this is you know it's about task interdependence so if the team has high task interdependence or some degree of task interdependence the competencies and what we know from the military and what we know from aviation and what we know from nuclear power uh, or anything else uh, generalizes you know and, and we are very uh, uh, cautious about overgeneralizing, but so we say, you know, if, if there's high interdependence and you need the expertise from somebody else to execute a task, then um, things can go from, from healthcare to the military, to the military, to aviation and so forth. And as a matter of fact, uh, I will tell you the most of what's in, in the book that we just wrote, most of the, most of the science it's from military, and very much uh, appreciated uh, by uh, healthcare. Interesting, interesting. So your new book, um, which I did see on Amazon just this morning, um, it, uh, it 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 really summarizes some of the um, important and and somewhat universal themes that you've observed over your career. Yeah, it, it, what it does is we, we have a heuristic there. Um, we call it the seven C's of teamwork, but again, it's just a heuristic, not a theory. It's it's a way to organize the body of knowledge uh, that we have. And in that book, uh, we invoke like 30, 35 uh, meta-analysis. So there's a wealth of information on teams and what matters. And so that's what we've done in, in, in that book. It's, it's a very practical book. It's not a, if you want to learn theories of, of team dynamics, that's not the book. This is a book uh, for leaders, for practitioners, and and we uh, illustrate the science behind the guidance that we provide in, in, in that book. Um, but most of if, if, if the citations are either from the military or work that was funded by the military. So can you think of one or two insights about teams that you think most organizations don't realize or underappreciate? Yeah, number one killer of teamwork is the lack of uh, clarity in roles and responsibilities, which is unbelievable to me. So teams 
again, the, the number one killer of teamwork across industries, across tasks, across um, types of things is when people don't know what they're supposed to do and with whom. Lack of clarity, uh, it, it, it's, it's one insight. A second insight is, you know, it's related to shared mental models and things we did with the NDM, which is organizations and leaders believe that the more communication, the better. And we have learned that more is not necessarily better. Better is better. And so, you know, the best ORs have been, the best military teams I've seen are quiet because they have a shared understanding of what they need to do. They anticipate their needs. They pass information without teammates requesting it. And so this the whole idea of shared mental models that came from the NDM uh, framework. Uh, it gets people in get this aha. And so those two things are, I know I can tell you 10 other things, but those are the incredible uh, uh, awakening in the organization when they say role clarity. And, and they all say, of course, yes, I remember. Yeah, because I didn't know what I was supposed to do. My boss told, told us that we were a team, but I didn't know why I was here. And so those are two, um, two kind of uh, insights. So you mentioned this morning you uh, gave a lecture at Wardo. Was it was that the students? It was to surgeons. Ah, surgeons. Yeah, uh, but you, but you're also doing teaching now. Is that correct? No, I'm not sure. Uh, this year I'm not teaching because I'm chair of the department. So ah, got it. But I but I do have doctoral students. So while I'm not not do formal training, I do a lot of informal training. Yeah, right. That's actually where I wanted to go with the question, which is to say, mentoring uh, younger folks coming up in their careers, what kinds of advice are you giving them uh, now that we do have such a robust science uh, of teams? Um, what kind of technical What kind of technical advice are you giving them, but also just sort of career advice? Well, um, uh, you know, I've placed uh, maybe five, six doctoral students in either schools of medicine or at hospitals. And if I can graduate uh, five more in the next few months, they will all be placed in healthcare. It's amazing. Uh, so what I tell them is, you know, you have to follow your passion. And one, two is, uh, even though you, you're an academic, uh, at least I hope they get this for me, which is uh, have impact. You can write all the articles in the world in the most prestigious journals, but if nobody reads them and nobody can extract practical implications from it, it's not what I do. So I tell them, you know, follow your passion, have impact, um, and, uh, you know, be essentially a scientist practitioner, um, somebody that uses the science. Uh, to inform practice and the practice informs science. So those are the kind of three, two, three things. And um, and then they go out and, uh, you know, I have a couple of John Hopkins, uh, VCU, a number of places they're doing well. So I know you have mentored many people and influenced folks in the NAM community and, and well beyond that. I'm wondering who are some of the people who have influenced you or inspired uh, inspired you over the course wow. of Wow. 
Well, I have to tell you, I've been a lucky fellow. Uh, throughout my career, I've been surrounded by intelligent, motivated, talented, inspirational uh, group of colleagues. So Jan Cannon-Bowers was one, no question about it. Uh, Scott Tannenbaum, who I worked with, it's another one. John Matthew, who is a, a, another. So Scott Tannenbaum and John Matthew, uh, we went to grad school together. We are all the minimum. Um, I have to say, uh, if that he, he won't send me Christmas card, Gary Klein. <laughs> When he when he listens to this, you know he'll be happy and he will continue to send me Christmas cards. Um, uh, yeah, the you know from the NDM uh, movement, uh, Mark Boeing, uh, Neil Sofiety, um, you know all of those gave me a little bit uh, to reflect on and to do things. Um, and again, I've been fortunate because uh, I've been surrounded by a lot of good people. Uh, you know and. And um, if you look at my publication record, even though I have a lot, I mean, very few that I'm the lead author. I collaborated with a lot of people who have great ideas, very creative, very talented, very motivated, and who had, to some degree, the same passion that I have about having impact. So, but but those are the the names uh, that come to mind. It makes sense that a team's researcher would really value collaboration. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a nice symmetry. Did, did, did I mention Gary Klein? You did. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, next, uh, will you tell us one thing about you that you think the audience probably doesn't know? One thing about me that the audience doesn't know. Well, uh, obviously, my, this accent is not from Texas. Um, <laughs> I'm from Lima, Peru. I've uh, been here 45 years in this country. Um, one thing they don't know about me. Well, uh, when I came to this country 45 years ago, I, I ended up in Nebraska. So... Two things happen. I learned football in Nebraska, so I'm a Husker, Cornhusker fan. And two, this is probably not exactly what you were asking, but the reason I became a U.S. citizen a long time ago and stayed in this country, I fell in love with the Midwest, with the Midwest people. So maybe people don't know about that. That, that, uh, that uh, wow, this is now the 70s, right? Uh, so uh, it was unbelievable. Uh, I, I spent time in a town called Kearney, Nebraska, which is about a couple hours from Lincoln and Omaha. And that's what I, this is how I left Lima, Peru and came to Kearney, Nebraska. And then fell in love with the U.S. and here I am. All right. So, so I've got a, I've got a follow-on question to that, uh, which is to say, uh, to put these two parts of, of this podcast together. At one point you said you never wanted to be a, a, an academic. Uh, and, and so now you're um, taking us back to, to the start when, when you could have gone in any direction. So I'm wondering, given all these domains you've worked in, all the immersion you've done, all the time that you've spent with experts in different domains, if you could do it all over, is there any particular domain uh, that you might have liked to have stuck with as a career? Wow, what a good question. Um... What would I do differently? 
I wouldn't change anything. I, you know, again, lucky guy, very lucky. Um, so when I began with the Navy, I wanted to have impact and continue to, to want to have impact. Never wanted to be an academic, but I said the world needs to know about what we're doing. And so we published. Uh, and then when I became an academic, I said, wow, I can still have an impact and, and with more freedom. So looking back, all the pieces, all the pieces were in place for, uh, that, that have um, gotten me where I am in terms of, uh, uh, you know, this lifetime achievements award, which are very rewarding. And, and so I, you know, I'm struggling with this, but I am not, I cannot think of anything else. I should have done something different. The path was by luck or by intention was perfect. 15 years doing applied work, working with the Navy, learning a hell of, of a lot of things. Then as an academic, getting young people to be energized about uh, our fields, human factors and IO psychology. Uh, I wouldn't change anything. So, so you wouldn't change anything, but is there any particular domain that you've worked with where in the back of your head you thought, Gosh, if I was if I was not doing what I was doing, I'd really like to be doing this, or I'd really like to be in this field, or these. I could do that job. I think I could uh, do that job. Well, I can enjoy it. And any any thoughts about that? Well, if it was an academic, or a, a, you know, I always wanted to be a chef. <laughs> I'm a foodie. <laughs> right. um, and so I spent. I actually, I've done. You know, I read a lot of uh, books from chefs because um, they also create and develop teams. So. Um, but another domain, I probably um, would have liked to have more methods, especially quasi-experimental design methods, uh, background in, in expertise, because everything for the last 30 years, 35 years I've been doing this, everything is quasi-experimental, you know, no randomization. So... Uh, I had one class only on uh, quasi-experimental design in grad school. And by the way, that's the only book that I still uh, look at 35 mm. years later, the uh, cooking camel. Uh, but I think methods would have been something that I would want more expertise, more education, because at the end of the day, everything, ma what matters, uh, uh, what, what help us, helps us uh, understand really expert is through methodologies. And so um, that's, that's, I think, the only thing that I, was, I would like to know more about different kinds of methods, especially quasi-experimentation stuff. Um, and that's why sometimes I also look at, you know, anthropologists. Sometimes I feel that to study teams, you have to be an anthropologist, you know, teams in the wild, you know, it, it, uh, you know or, uh, so it's methods. So you spent a career studying experts in all kinds of domains. If you could instantly become an expert in anything at all, what would it be? What would you choose? Chef, cooking. Chef. <laughs> Is there a certain cuisine? Uh, well, I was going to say Peruvian, but uh, I don't uh, know. Uh, you know, uh, and by the way, the, you know, the uh, cooking channel and the food channel are the I'm, I'm obsessed with those. I've watched them more than anything else. Uh, it, it, 
So not any cuisine, you know. Uh, I, I tell you what I've learned from, from chefs, and maybe this is a part of me, which is chefs are never happy. They're always searching for perfection, even though they get immediate feedback. Either they like your food or you don't. But they're always going. They keep going and improve, you know, the good chefs, you know, improving. Uh, um, they have the passion for the food and and, 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 and they try things and, and they keep, keep going and, and so forth. And, 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 they, and they teach, uh, you know, uh, others, the, the two chefs. And so that's what I, I think, you know, in, in another life, if I come back, maybe I would have wanted to be a chef. So that allows you to combine a love of food with uh, with team building, creating teams. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you, Eduardo, for speaking with us today. It has been a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, thank you very much for uh, asking me. And uh, I hope uh, this is uh, useful and, and entertaining to the audience. Absolutely. This has been really fun. Um, and so on that note, I want to thank you for joining us for the NDM podcast. I'm Laura Militello. And I'm Brian Moon. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.